Hi everyone, welcome to the Lawcast. My name is Melanie Thorley and I'm the director at MJT Law. I am fine solo today. <laughs> Nobody around. I have my dog here. I'm sure eBay will come and say hello at some point. But I wanted to talk about some of the new things that are happening here in Australia in relation to kind of what came out of the budget last week. We now have something called Fair Work Amendment Equal Pay for Equal Work Bill 2022. <laughs> but what on earth does it mean? Okay, so there's a bunch of stuff in this bill uh, that hasn't been passed yet. There is a lot of jibber-jabber around it being fair, it not being fair, it doesn't go far enough, it goes too far. But let's talk about some of the things that the, the bill is trying to achieve here. One of them is fascinating. And this feeds into that uh, casual worker uh, kind of concept. And this is limiting the use of labour hire contracts um, by removing an incentive, which is about lower pay. So for those of you who are not in Australia, Australians have this thing called labour hire. Let's say they're employers that hire a vast number of employees through a casual kind of work system to work somewhere else. They on hire the labour. Uh, for instance, uh, it could be a lower hire company hires 200 workers and they farm them out to all the energy resource companies here in Australia. So what happens is these labour hire workers are getting paid, well, to make the business model work, quite frankly, lower than a worker who would be employed internally in that company would be paid. Now, the um, Labor government that we have, the Albanese government, has now put a bill forward that's going to essentially stop that. This is mad. I don't know how it's going to work in a practical sense. It's going to limit the use of labor hire contracts by removing lower paid wages. It's going to encourage employers to make improved provisions for their labor hire requirements by retaining existing workers in permanent employment and encourage employees to train new workers through apprenticeships and trainees. <laughs> no idea how it's going to achieve those two goals. I think <laughs> what's going to happen instead is there's going to be vast numbers of unemployed labour hire workers out there. Look, the business model just won't work. I don't know a single labour hire company out there who can essentially pay the same as a host employer. And the new proposed amendment to the Fair Work Act is going to include... Um, to define the circumstances under which a new requirement would apply to a labour hire employer and host employers where a whole roster has been placed with labour hire employees. Kind of interesting. And, and you can see how that might be really um, profitable for the company that's got these host employees. If you're having to pay the uh, employee internally 50 bucks an hour and you can kind of get away with paying, or get away, I guess it's but negative language there, but you would be paying the uh, labour hire employee 30 bucks an hour. You're literally saving $20 an hour per employee. If you've got 300 of them, you can see how that's going to make a real difference. Um, they're going to require the host employer to pay an employee a base rate, which is at least equal to, if not more than, the rate paid to the employee of the host employer. Um including incentives, allowances, overtime, penalty rates, 
etc. So this means that labour hire employees are going to get paid the same, pretty much. Um, another horrifying thing. They're going to limit this, not to every single award out there. So those labour hire companies who are not in working in the black coal mining, which is really interesting, uh, the aircraft cabin crew, the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation Enterprise Award. Oh, hand on my heart, guys, I'd never heard of this one. Um, firefighting industry, I had no idea there were labour hire, um, vast amounts of labour hire in the firefighting industry. Um, maritime offshore gas, um, oil and gas, and seagoing industry. Incredible, absolutely incredible. So these obviously are um, industries that have huge numbers of labour hire workers. Now obviously uh, you can see how the energy resource industry has it. Uh, you'll be able to see essentially how um, the uh, sort of seagoing um, ward might, um, industry might have it. But firefighting, I had no idea, was such a big problem and aircraft cabin crew. There's also going to be some civil penalties attached to this, so I'll be really interested to see how this bill kind of plays out in reality. Um, I don't know if I like it. I really like this concept of reducing the number of casual employees we have here in Australia. I think casual employees are used as a real crutch, and I don't think it's good for the employees. I actually don't think it's good for the Australian sort of economy either. I don't think it provides... Uh, security, even if you've been doing the same roster day in, day out for more than, I mean, I know we've got this casual conversion here in Australia after a year, but uh, labour high has been carved out of that. Uh, I'm just really interested to see how this is going to play out because I actually really like this concept of stopping uh, casual workers. I just don't think it's going to do that. I don't think it's going to achieve the goal um, with which the, uh, the Labour government Hello eBay. The Labor government has um, is looking at uh, making these employees permanent. I just don't think it's going to happen. But absolutely fascinating. Now, as we know, we've got this. Well, maybe we don't know. Um, part of the budget was to put seven billion dollars into improving women's economic and gender equality. What does that mean? I have no idea. <laughs> what are they going to put their money into? Um, cheaper childcare, uh, a boost in parental leave scheme, $1.7 billion to improve women's safety initiatives against gender-based violence, and gender-responsive budgeting. Look, I can see how some of this might work. <sighs> They're going to invest $500 million to expand the paid parental leave scheme from 18 weeks, oh hello Seymour, 18 weeks to 26 weeks by July 2026. This is spin uh, to its best. I look at this and go right it's going to take four years to get this from 18 weeks to 26 weeks. That's going to take us into the next election. I think Labour was brilliant here. They are going to raise it every year until one year after the next election. <laughs> it's going to keep them in the news for shizzle. Um, the, what they're also saying though is by boosting paid pay parental leave scheme from 
um, 18 weeks to 26 weeks, it's going to allow more dads to be more involved. Hello, Seymour, you're going to come up. Um, to be more involved. Oh, this is Seymour, everyone. Hello. I'm not actually sure how that's going to happen. If you have a family that has, I don't know, a mum who is doing more of the caring than the dad, what's going to change by an extra eight weeks? I don't understand how eight weeks is going to make an awful lot of difference in that family dynamic. For those of us, for those out you out there who are listening or watching, and you think, "Hell no, Melanie, you're completely wrong. Eight weeks is going to make a massive difference here. Dads are going to take more time off. Of course they are. They're going to be more involved in the families. Um, just like Labor says, they're going to be. You are wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. I would love to hear a different opinion on this because I don't see it. I don't see it. I don't see it because if you're not already involved and you weren't already thinking about taking time off to look after the kids." What's going to change? You get an extra eight weeks to think about? I don't know. Anyway, maybe I'm just being a bit cynical here. Um, they're going to spend a pile of money to make it easier to get childhood education and care. Uh, there's a bunch of things about the gender pay gap. One of them I actually think is kind of interesting. And this is about making clauses in employment contracts that, that force people not to talk about their pay. Um, unlawful or null and void. What that's going to mean is all you people out there who have contracts that say you're not allowed to talk about your pay, they are not going to be enforceable and your um, employer is not allowed to adversely treat you for going ahead and talking about that. Now the Labour government says this is going to increase, actually the coalition government did this years ago, they had a, they had a bill in parliament for about seven years, eight years, they couldn't get it through, um, but now it's a new bill on the table and look, I don't know, I think it was good the first time, it's fine this time, I don't know what's changed apart from Labour maybe agreeing to it now, I have no idea, but actually I think as a rule it's probably a good idea to keep pays transparent. This will encourage employers to be less dodgy about who they're promoting and why, uh, and it enables employees not to feel like they are being passed over. There are some really interesting things here. We apparently, now I'm not an expert in this space, but apparently we used to think that the reason why women weren't paid the same as men in jobs was because women didn't ask for pay rises. They weren't aggressive about asking for these rises. There is some research out there that shows that that's not true. Apparently women are just as aggressive, it's just they don't get them. I don't know who they're asking. Um, I think you'll find uh, that... Probably some of it's true and some of it isn't. Maybe women aren't as aggressive. Maybe they are in certain industries. But the the cynical uh, way to see this is it's usually a man approving it and they will approve a man. I don't see how making pays no longer secret is going to change that. But I like the idea anyway because I like the transparency. I'm a big fan of that transparency. Okay, what else have we got? Women's health. Mental, they're putting money into mental health, that's excellent. 
Uh, oh, this one, I, I'm really interested in this. I'm going to segue a little bit do, 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 into a segue. This is about working from home. And if you guys have been watching over the past sort of month or two, you'll know that this is a pet project of mine. Working from home. <laughs> I'm certainly doing this podcast from inside a house, uh, but I don't work from home. I go to the office each day. Now, this is about COVID, uh, the big event, uh, as, as my associate calls it. Um, now, for a long time, we had, well, since 2020, in fact, we've had employees being, and employers being in lockdown from time to time. And that time could be longer or shorter, and different states had different lockdown periods. Uh, but there was definitely lockdowns and you would be directed to work from home because there were health directors out there and things like that. Well, there is a lot of chatter out there. And I mean a lot of chatter out there about continuing that working from home kind of aspect and it being more of a, uh, a thing now than it ever used to be. Now, right to work from home. Look, broadly speaking, uh, you don't have one. You don't have a right to work from home. Um, there's, a, there's a bunch of stuff around that. But let's say you got your job pre-COVID. I mean, I'm not sure why we're saying pre and post because I think we're still in COVID. We're just not monitoring it anymore. But we're talking about pre um, and post COVID. So let's say you got this job pre-COVID. You were going to the office every day, you were driving in, bussing in, cycling in, scooting in, however you're heading to work, and you were going into work and that was all fine, and, and you didn't think anything of it, because that was the job, right? You were heading into work, it's what it said in your contract, um, but then you spent, oh, I don't know, 30% of your time working from home, maybe more, maybe you spent 100% of your time working from home, but now it's all over and your employer is asking you to go back to work and you don't want to you like working from home you like having a two-second commute you like being able to do these zoom calls and your gym jams or you know you like to be able to do your washing while in the middle of the day and uh if those of you who watched my podcast two weeks ago with uh, the law cast two weeks ago with Nera Skripik, you will see that uh, there's a lot of chat chatter out there about this kind of distraction thing. Now, do you have a right to work from home? Hell no. No, you don't. You do not have a right to work from home. But what happens next? You don't have you don't have any kind of legal right. There's no there's no kind of common law standard out there that says you can work from home if you want to. So what is the requirement? The requirement is whether it's a contractual one and in your contract it says that you have to go to work in the office and you sign that contract then you have to go to work in the office or it doesn't say that then you have a duty to comply with lawful and reasonable directions that your employer asks you and one might argue that it is a lawful direction if it's in your contract or that's the thing that you've been doing since you started working there um, but is it a reasonable 
direction. We can get over lawful pretty easily here, but let's see if we can get over that hurdle of being reasonable. What is a reasonable direction? Well, <laughs> okay, so I've got some um, um, kind of scenarios here. I honestly think it is a reasonable direction to be asked to work at the office from here on if you, certainly if it's in your contract and you started working there uh, before COVID and you're heading to the office and there was this expectation that you're always going to head back, I think that's certainly a reasonable um, direction. Um, I think it's reasonable if your employer's considered you working from home, but it's obvious that you're working in a place like this. There's, you know, I'm in an open space. Uh, I've got two dogs here. I might have kids who are going to come home from school at three o'clock or four o'clock and my workday finishes at five. Uh, I might have um, teenagers who are, you know, who are blowing in and blowing out and I'm, I'm like working in this open space. Your employer has a right to expect you to diligently get on with your day. Yeah. And having a kip in the middle of the day when it's not your lunch break, zipping out and putting your washing out, none of this falls in to work. Yeah. And I just wonder how reasonable it really is to expect your employer to say it's okay for you to work from home when you're not shut away in a room for the entire day on your own. Um, because actually, if you're at work, you wouldn't have those distractions. You wouldn't have your washing to do. You wouldn't have your kids come home. You wouldn't have the pets zooming around. You wouldn't have um, someone knocking at your door. You just wouldn't have that stuff happening. So I think it's a long bow to say to your employer, you know what, I've got all this going on, but I can still focus on my job. That's all fine. Whether you can focus on your job or not, I think is less of a relevant um, question than are you focusing on your job all day? And let's take a kind of a, a different approach. Let's say you were employed in early 2021. You were in Victoria. You're in lockdown. You've been in lockdown now for several weeks and there is no end in sight, yeah? And you're employed in this company and it does say in your contract that you'll be expected to go to work once COVID's over or whatever how that works but for over a year and a half you are you're working from home I don't know I really don't know I I think it's I think it's about expectations I think it depends on the conversations um, that your employer had with you at the time you took the job and whether those conversations were around your willingness um, to go back to the office full-time I don't think it should be the conversation should be around you know what, I moved further away because I didn't have to transport anymore and now it's taken me an hour and a half to get to work and I don't want to come anymore. I don't think it's about that. Um, I, don't, I think it's more about what was the conversation you had at the time you took the job. And if that conversation was included that you would be back at work full-time in the office, whether that's part-time for you or full-time, um, your, full, your full working day, then I think it's unreasonable for your employer, um, for you to ask your employer to continue something like that. So I think it really does depend on what sort of conversations happened at the time. I haven't obviously included flexible working arrangements. So look, I know that there's a, 
I know the Fair Work Act says that you can ask for flexible working arrangements under certain conditions. I haven't factored that into this uh, little rant today. So now we have another bill. It's called Secure Jobs, Better Pay Bill. Yep. And it's aiming to close, obviously, the gender gap. And one of the other things it's going to do is improve job security. This one I'm really interested in. Well, I'm interested in all of it, but I'm really fascinated by this because this is contracts and everybody knows that I'm a big fan of contracts. I'm a contract lawyer. Now, this is all about uh, rolling contracts, rolling fixed term contracts. So rolling fixed term contracts are these, and many, many people are on them. They could have been on them for 20 years, 10 years. These are ones that have every six months your contract renews, every year your contract renews, might renew for three months ongoing up to... You know, and then after a year and a half, you find yourself unemployed after the sixth, three-month contract. So this this is really interesting. And what the um, Labour government is seeking to do is to say you can only have two or two years, whichever is sooner. I really like it. Again, it feeds into this sort of permanent working arrangement. So it's clear that the Labour government is interested in employees working on a permanent basis, be that part-time or full-time. They want to get rid of these casual workers and they also want to get rid of these kind of rolling um, um, fixed-term contracts. The trouble is, this is a one-size-fits-all solution and one size does not fit all. Uh, yeah, okay, it, it's it's going to stop those guys out there from just putting contracts in arbitrarily. But what about the people whose funding is reliant on some type of annual thing? And they can't promise that the job's going to be there in a year's time. So they put a fixed-term contract on it. And when their funding gets renewed, they review all the contracts and, and offer another one. It's not considering that. And uh, I'd be really interested to see what sort of carve-outs there's going to be. But, of course, right now, what we have is a bill. And it's been argued. And people like it and people hate it and people are ambivalent. But this one is a really interesting one. I'd like to see more carve-outs. I think um, organisations that rely on funding, I think, is fair to have these contracts. Organisations that don't rely on funding, I think, well, I think they have to suck it up. But I'm, I'm not working for them. Okay, I'm not going to get on a massive rant about multi-employer bargaining. I see it as a massive barrier for small business. I see it as a massive issue and an absolute nod to unions to just basically do whatever they want. It is essentially going to allow, in my view, what they've affectionately started calling collaborative industrial action. And it is sympathy strikes. I absolutely hate this idea. Uh, and I worry as an employer uh, about this bill coming out with this stuff in it. There is no true opt-in, opt-out solution for businesses on this point. And I would like there to be. If, if they're going to have something as mad as multi-employer bargaining, then I think the employers need to have the first veto of this. Uh, but I doubt it's there, and many people doubt it's there. Um, it might be there later on if it, you know, it's the only way it can be passed, for instance, but I'm, I'm worried, and I don't like it. And sympathetic striking is a bad idea.
Okay, now I'm going to talk about, just before we finish up, um, a couple of cases. Okay, so one of them is LD. This is fascinating. So LD uh, was taken to court recently and a decision was handed down on the 3rd of September um, and it was found that Aldi should have paid workers for pre-shift tasks. Now, there was a lot of discussion about this in the actual case. And I'm just going to bring the case up. Um, okay, so what was happening is these... Um, these Aldi workers were asked to clock on, so they asked to turn up to work, and then there was a whole pile of kind of um, startup stuff that these office workers, I'm sorry, the um, the workers on in the warehouses had to do. And this is all about getting ready for the day. There was a lot of argument about how long these people had to do these tasks before they actually started getting paid. Uh, and there was also some jibber-jab about how these workers never brought this up in their last bargaining um, space. I'm just going to kind of cut through all that a little bit and say really what they were working on was whether or not the employees were working and therefore entitled to be paid for this time. Obviously, Aldi was claiming that they weren't and therefore weren't entitled, but the court found actually these tasks were... Um, were significant enough and required that actually, yes, it did fall into the category of being at work and therefore um, should have been paid. So that's kind of an interesting one. Um, we get this question a lot. One of, the, one of the ways this question comes up in real time, not just at Aldi, but for landscapers or for construction workers or concreters, and these are kind of mum and dad companies, where they ask the worker to turn up to a particular site they drive somewhere else altogether and then they start work for the day. Should they be getting paid for when they first turn up to the site, the, 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 the one spot, and then, um, and then move, you know, in, in that travel time to the next spot? Um, so and in this case, Aldi, with the Aldi case, the court said or the commission said, hell yeah. Absolutely, they should be getting paid for it. So I think we should look into this a little bit more, and it's definitely something that kind of is a red flag, but, you know, something to think about. The next case I wanted to talk about was workers choosing not to relocate. This was fascinating. Okay, so this was actually an appeal. So the decision was... Um, that workers who chose not to relocate had to resign and were they dismissed. There was a lot of jibber-jab about this. is about a mine site and in their contract it clearly stated that they'd be at this mine site but could work in some of the other facilities. Now, the company decided to shut down the mine. Happens. And everybody everyone was kind of relocated to other places and there was an offer to, for relocation there wasn't anything to do with signing new employment contracts or anything like that you just got another job somewhere else and there was a little bit of kind of questioning around what might happen next um, and they sent out this kind of 
information sheet. Do we know when OS will no longer be required at Arthur, Mount Arthur Cole? And the answer was yes, the decision has been made, blah, 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 blah. Does, what does this mean for operational services employees? It says we'll continue to have support, stable jobs for our employees, they'll have ongoing employment and alternative deployment locations. Um, with OS production deployments, could I be transferred to? And they went all oh, look all over the place. Queensland, Western Australia, South Australia. Now remember, these are um, these are probably a mixture of fly in, fly outs, drive in, drive outs type workers. But there was a there was a list. Um, now the shifts are quite good. Seven sevens. <laughs> I think that's pretty good. Um, and it says, would you be required to sign a new contract? Those deploying to these places won't um, can I stay at this place MacArthur Cole and they said no there are no longer any operations um, now one of the questions was I've moved my family here after the last changes and I don't want to move or fly what options do I have and they've said you can be redeployed fly and fly out that sort of thing um, and if you decline well then you'll need to resign yeah, and you don't get any redundancy payments because it, the, it's not a redundancy. You are literally getting your contract and you're shifting it to this place. So there was an awful lot of jibber-jabber about this, an awful lot of jibber-jabber. And the appeal court found that there was no nothing wrong with the original decision, that these people weren't dismissed. So there's something really interesting. I think what we can take away from that here is... If your contract says that you've got kind of a different option to work, then you know you have to contemplate that that could happen to you one day and that you may not be considered redundant if you're asked to move to a different facility. So I think it's really important that you, when you are looking at those contracts or if you are drafting those contracts, that you really consider that factor and whether it might be possible, whether it might be a possibility or not. Now, the last case I want to talk about is a photographer now this photographer there needed to be a decision on whether he was a contractor or employee um, now this is a really interesting one because this there wasn't a lot of facts that were in dispute on this one he worked as a photographer had done for about 35 years um, he had worked for this person five days a week um, for some time, I think since around 2016, uh, that he he started as a contractor. Um, he understood himself um, as a contractor, and the courts basically said, "Yep, you're a contractor." But they went through a really long-winded way of saying this. Now, there's a lot of jibber jab out there at the moment about contractors and sham contracting and things like that, and. There's, there's a lot of law around this, but I think broadly what you need to do is understand that if you start as a contractor at the beginning of the relationship, you understand yourself to be a contractor at the beginning of the relationship, you treat each other as contractors at the beginning of the relationship, your contract says you're a contractor at the beginning of the relationship, and you continue with that throughout the business relationship, then you're pretty much going to be a contractor. However, if if it is ambiguous at the beginning or you 
everything sort of changes halfway through. You start getting sick leave and holiday pay and there's kind of discussions about, you know, your employment there. Well, yes, you might want to start thinking about whether or not you're an employee or not. But for now, um, you need to think about what does the contract say and does it say I'm a contractor and is there ambiguity there? Right. So we've talked about a pile of things today, people. We've we've talked about some of the new bills that are coming out and some of the horrifying things, the the some of the interesting things, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, you haven't found solo Melanie to be <laughs> too boring today. But no matter what, the lawcast is going to be here every two weeks. Uh, I'll probably have some really interesting things to say in a couple of weeks' time because this bill is going to be dibbed all for the for, until it's passed, if not um, um, or not, as the case may be. I'd like to see some changes in it, um, and I'm pretty sure that a lot of people out there would like to see some changes in it. If you think I'm wrong, and an extra eight weeks uh, paid parental um, leave is going to make all the difference for dads to get involved with their children more, then let me know. I call bullshit. If they're not already involved in eight weeks, it's not going to make much difference in the lifetime of a kid. Anyway, everyone, thank you very much for listening and watching to the Lawcast, and I will see you in two weeks' time. See you later.